prepare yourself for another episode of Thriving in Construction, the podcast with our special guest, the CEO and sole owner of Stinka Construction and Consulting Services, LLC, Miss Cindy Marty. Tinka is a Florida-based business that provides a wide-range business development and leads management support for construction firms seeking to conduct business with local, state, and federal governments. For the past nine years, Ms. Cindy Martin's consulting advocacy firm, Tinka, has focused on minority and veteran-owned firms with the ability to pursue and win federal construction contracts. Interestingly, Ms. Martin served 26 years in the U.S. Air Force and Ohio National Guard. In addition, she held various senior positions in the contracting, accounting, and budget career fields. I am so excited to learn more about Stinka and our guest's personal background. So let's all welcome Ms. Cynthia Martin. CEO and managing member of Cinca and a retired senior master sergeant of the U.S. Air Force. Cindy, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. I know how difficult it is for you to drive down to Miami. It's been a while that we have wanted you to come here, but I really, really appreciate from the bottom of my heart you being here. Well, we can blame COVID for that. Well, I know a lot of people are going to benefit from listening to you, the wealth of knowledge you have. I mean, I really admire a lot your trajectory in this business, in construction, And but you are more than construction. There's more to you than the construction world that I know of. Can you please tell the listeners about your background? How did you start in construction? But before that, what was your life about? I'm originally from Ohio. I come from a family of construction men and and being a, a female, I mean, basically it was growing up, I mean, they didn't look at as teaching the, the girls how to do, you know, the construction world. My, you know, my dad had two boys, my two brothers, both are, are well-versed in construction. One is my brother, Ed, is a um, industrial painter. His biggest job he ever did was painted the Mackinac Bridge. And my younger brother, Mike, is a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, is what I tell him. And he helped me the last three years completely renovate our family lake house that after my father passed away, being the oldest out of six, my mom gave me the house and said, you can do what you want with it. So instead of selling the house, we did a complete gut job. And basically, I've set it up to where my great nieces and nephews and great, great nieces and nephews, I have three, can learn to swim in Lake Erie like I did growing up. I haven't been invited to that house. It's a small house, 750 <laughs> square feet, no, a lot smaller than what I have in St. Augustine. <laughs> I'm sure it's beautiful. But, I mean, growing up, I was more of the tomboy type. So, you know, I, I hung around with a lot of my male cousins and building the forts and, you know, working with them and, and doing those things. I was never the, the Barbie type girl. So, so I mean, through the years, I, I've learned to basically do things on my own. 
How did you get into the Air Force? Uh, 18 years old, my parents, middle class, six kids, a strong Catholic faith, and my dad's income for a month was $800 at that during that time. So they could not afford to send me to college, even though I, I knew I had, you know, aspirations of getting a college degree. So the only way that I felt that I could achieve that is if I went into the military, which I was able to do that. I received two associate degrees in management, received my bachelor's degree in business, and then I also received my MBA in business. Through the military? Through the military. Military paid for it all. Awesome. So is that what you wanted to study from the beginning? Um, No. I mean, to be honest with you, when I first went in, I had a thing inside to where, you know, as a bean counter is, is basically what they, they called me in the military. My first job in the military was in accounting. So, but I always wanted to be, and, and I've always said if I had to do it over again, I'd be a pharmacist. Really? Absolutely. Why? It's applying mathematics and then also in the medical field, I knew it was a, a career path that would never go away. And that's one of my strong suits is, is mathematics. So I, I figure I could count pills. So you go from a dream of being a pharmacist to into the military because you couldn't afford your dream in education. And then the avenue of management comes to you mm -hmm. and you continue to pursue it. So obviously that you found something that you liked in, in, in that area. Well, I think the, you know, I was given a number of opportunities by some of the mentors that I had in the military. One being Colonel Lindsey Whitehead. Uh, he is very instrumental. In, in getting me into the contracting field. He actually, he'll tell you, he stole me from his wife. I used to work for his wife, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Amy Whitehead, in the accounting and budget area. So I think it was a great move for me to go into contracting. It allowed me to lead a division, you know, within the logistics squadron. And then it also got me into some of the things that, that I knew growing up in, in you know, listening to my dad and my uncles and, you know, my cousins that were in the construction field. You know, my, my dad, you know, he'll be gone four years next month and he was a boilermaker by trade. And, you know, boilermakers are a dying breed these days. And, you know, it, it takes a lot, you know, to be able to do that type of work. What? I know you love your father and he probably is one of your biggest uh, your superstar. What would your father say when he sees you today with everything that you have accomplished, all your journey and where you are today? What would he say about you? Well, I'll tell you when when I was getting ready to retire in 2006 and they had the formal retirement ceremony, he, he told me, he said, wow, you have as many ribbons and medals as Patton does. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's... Counting. Yeah, he was, he was counting all the medals and, and ribbons and all that that I had. How so, many medals is that? Um, 39. I have 39 with various devices for repeat citations and, and things like that. So, Which I'm, one are you most proud of? I would say it is the Meritorious Service Medal that I have with the Bronze Star. Which means exceptional service and dedication and work ethics 
for for the time that I was in the military. What's the biggest sacrifice or challenge you went through in the military? In other words, I believe challenges are opportunities to make you who you are. Through those challenges, we develop our character, and that becomes responsible for who you are today. Had you not gone through that, what's the biggest challenge that shaped who Cindy is today? I think the the biggest challenge that I had was not spending enough time with my family. That was... That still hits me right here that for me, with the mindset, my 30s, going into my 40s, you know, I've, I've got to look at what am I going to do to be successful? Success was always on my radar. And, you know, I always set milestones and in, in, in achievements to, to hit. And, you know, a lot of times gatherings at at the lake house, you know, I forego to be able to, you know, I was either at a conference or, or, you know, I was working or, or something like that. So, I mean, it, it's times like that, that I didn't get to spend with siblings, my parents, and in being able to share in those memories and, and to continue those memories. So you got the medal for that high level of achievement and basically of yeah. Sacrificing time with family. Which yeah, and basically too, it was it was driven on the fact of the support that I gave during nine eleven, and also you know helping turn around a, a a division that was looked at as less favorable by the military personnel on base as one that they wanted to avoid, like the plague, to where one where they could come in and you know they had help and support and was able to get what they needed so that they could do their job. You became a contracting officer? Yes. For how long? I was a contracting officer for 10 years with an unlimited warrant. Unlimited? Mm-hmm. Well, can you explain what that is? An unlimited is that you have the ability to sign contracts without having a threshold. Which means a lot of million dollars. A lot of million dollars. I think my biggest project was the award of a $15 million new, brand new construction, construction logistics squadron. Cindy, so you are 28 years in the military? 27. 27. And what makes you, because I'm sure you were proud of that, of the work that you were doing, what makes you get out? Is it your family? What what actually makes you change? Because I know change is not that easy sometimes. Probably for you, it's the same. What makes you change path completely? Well, in 2006, well, actually the end of 2005, I was due to be promoted to E9, which is Chief Master Sergeant, which is the highest rank that you can achieve in the Air Force. And there were some stipulations put on me that in order to be promoted, you know, I'd have to, you know, take a deployment, you know, go overseas for an extended period of time. And then also, you know, basically I was I was told by the commander at that time that I needed to wait my turn. And my turn, I sat behind eight guys. So I knew there were things that I could do on the outside for companies that I had been talking with and dealing with, especially in the construction world. And one of those companies approached me and it was Toltest out of Maumee, Ohio. And, you know, I met with Ernest Enrique and the other officers of the the company and decided at that time that I would come on board as their director of procurement. And so I put my retirement in. So I sacrificed 
getting my last stripe, being, you know, referred to as chief, to be able to take on and and start working in the industry. The so, private sector. The private sector. But it also gave you the opportunity to be in Ohio with your family, which you crave a lot. Yes. Right? Yes. So that was something that you actually needed. It was uh, too painful back uh, at that time. It, it allowed you to... Yeah, and, and, and being able to, you know, a lot of it was Monday through Friday. So I was able to start attending those events and, and, and things like that and spending more time with my family so you get you're in the in the military you work in contracting you learn a lot about construction obviously because construction is it, it, a high spend mm-hmm. right from the government it's always been and it continues to be and so you now work for the private sector helping them earn work with the, with the government so can you give us the biggest distinctions as to what does a company need to do in order to be successful in the federal government what are the three most important things that a company needs to be if they don't have it they have to prepare themselves to be able to accomplish I would say first would be financial strength and bonding second is going to be both internal resources that understand the federal market as well as the ability to tap into exterior resources that understand the federal market. And, and third, I think it has to be a commitment by all that, you know, federal contracting is completely different from commercial. So there has to be that mindset that, you know, you, we've got to get through all the paperwork, all the red tape in in hire somebody that understands that. And that's that basically was the foundation for me starting my company because I knew there were companies out there that would benefit from my knowledge and in the understanding of the contracting process that would help them, you know, pursue the government contracts. Win work. Yes. But when you win the war, so this is very, very good. You, you're, you, I mean, it's obviously right on the money. The, the financial side of it is important. Mm-hmm. And the bonding act. You know, that capacity, capacity with resources. Without mm-hmm. people, we can do anything. Um, and they're important at the proposal level also. You have to be able to prove that you can get the work done. Absolutely. You have to be able to show not only that you have the resources to do that, but you have to show that you have past performance as well, that you've done that type of work. You know, because the government is just not going to hand out contracts left and right. And a lot of people, when they first get into the business, especially in the 8A program, they think that, you know, this is a open door, you know, and the contracts are going to flow in. It's not. There's a lot of 8A companies that never get a contract. A lot. Some people have a hallucination that they tap into, uh, it's an obligation that they're an 8A and they, they need to receive a contract. Absolutely. They think it's the golden egg. Yeah. When in fact it's it's a lead egg, you know, it might be covered in gold, but you have to do the work to turn that into a gold. And egg. there's we can have a whole season about a theater program mm-hmm. because there's a lot to talk about that, and we we I'd be it'd be exciting to bring you back in to talk about that. How do you get in? How do you succeed? There's challenges to the theater program. Mm-hmm. Everything is not as it appears. But when you say so, yes, those. Those three are important, financial strength and bonding, the resources, internal or external, and the commitment to to understand of the complexity of and the bureaucracy required by the government. Everything is very well defined and you have to do what you're asked to do. Mm-hmm. You're gonna be uh, you're gonna be 
accountability is going to be part of the process. But when you get the work, what are the other three things that you have to be to do to be successful? Because at the end, you get the work, fine, that was hard. But then get it done, it's a different story. I think the biggest thing is that you, the first thing I would say is that you have to have a project management team both in-house and in the field that can work together and to be able to execute. And communication is key. Accountability is key, not only, you know, between each other, but also for subcontractors that you have. You have to hold your subcontractors accountable. There's a reason why the government asks for a schedule from a contractor, because they want to know what's going to be done, how it's going to be done, and how long it's going to take. It's just not a piece of paper. That's your living document. That's how you're going to start from the beginning, from pre-award all the way to post-award to close out. That's your map. That map is what's going to drive that project to completion. Now, in the 30 plus years of experience I have, even though the government is very, very, very structured and accountability is part of the process, I prefer to work for the federal government even if it's in a remote location, then local sometimes I mean they pay. Mm-hmm. If you do what they, you're supposed to do, because it's pretty laid out and it's clear, it's not. It does. It's not depending on somebody's opinion on that project. It's whatever it's in the contract. It's what you're going to be required to do. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really change from there. So like, if there's clear expectations. You will get paid, and you will get paid pretty fairly quickly. You're a small company mm-hmm. in less than 15 days, mm-hmm. which is beautiful because, as you said, financial strength is key. Cash flow is key. Absolutely. However, I mean, I tell people this left and right. I I work, I have projects down here in South Florida, and I'm not going to say the entity. But for some reason, you have to really fight so much to get paid, which to me is crazy, right? You get the work done and, and there is, there's no clarity in the process, Mm -hmm. which we're not going to get into that, but that affects a lot of companies. Well, I think too, you see that in the proposals as well, you know, what they require, you know, when you look at federal versus state versus local, just the difference in the type of documentation that that they want for proposal submission. Um, You know, the government is, is very keen. I mean, their proposals, their contracts lay out exactly what's expected. If it says you shall do this, that's black and white. That's how it needs to be done. If it says you may or it, it can be or it could be, then that needs to be clarified or it, it, you need to present a way that either through value engineering or, you know, just a better way of doing business. Cindy, tell us, like you said, past performance is important. Mm-hmm. How does a company build past performance when, I I mean, I went through this, you know, I started the business in the garage and I had already quite a bit of experience working not only for uh, uh, the government, because I I worked three years for a city, a big city, but I also worked for the private sector, working on public jobs. That gave me a huge understanding of the process, of the construction process and what it really takes. When I started my company in the garage, though, I started marketing and, you know, I had an experience, but I didn't have an experience with a company. And I can talk about me, but I'm not here for that. In your experience, from the contracting perspective, what does a company need to do to build that resume? And considering that there is the person that doesn't have any experience that tries to go into the 8A program, right? They know construction is good. They become an 8A and now they want to work. 
Mm-hmm. And then there's the person that has kind of paid their dues working for someone else, acquire the experience as much as they could, and then they start. What are the two scenarios? I think the first scenario would be a company with no past performance and trying to get into the industry look at subcontracting to other companies subcontract to other small businesses you know a lot of a lot of small businesses will look for lower tier subcontractors to help them with a project if you the other scenario is hire individuals that have strong past performance to to start you out and work towards and, and market that way and try to get your first job a lot of folks, when they go in there and they, they, from a competitive standpoint, they want to look at, wow, you know, I can, I can go after this one to $5 million job. You know, there's nothing wrong with looking at a $250,000 job or a $100,000 job. Get your foot in the door. I've made more money on a smaller job. Absolutely. I always say, you know, keep hitting the singles and then every now and then one hit one out of the park. Absolutely. Because you're only away your last job, it could be the one you're doing now. Absolutely. And past performance with the federal government is huge. Absolutely. And you know, the administration part of it, it doesn't matter if it's a two hundred thousand dollar job or if it's a million dollar job, the paperwork is still the same. You know, the length of the project completion may differ. But the administrative requirements are still the same. Now, you, there's many reasons why a job can go south. Many reasons. You could have the right client. You could have the right team. But if your estimate is bad, it's, it can be crushed. It can be detrimental to you. Mm-hmm. Or if you hire a subcontractor that today was doing well, everything is great, and they something happened to them. I mean, they had three jobs that nobody paid them. It can, it, and you don't know about it because communication is key, then you have, you're close to even losing your own company. And I think that's key for a company, especially like Lunacon, is to have a very good on-site project team between the PM and the site superintendent to where there's constant communication and constant communication with the lower tier subcontractors. Absolutely. You know, keep that door open and and be able to discuss and work with them. You know, a lot of lower tier subcontractors are mom and pop shops. You know, they're not sophisticated companies with high IT capabilities. You know, a lot of them, they still do pen and paper, you know, when it comes to invoicing. So it takes a lot of dedication on the project management side and the site superintendent side to work with them to get their invoices in, to get them paid so that they are able to continue to do their jobs and to make sure that they have cash flow so that they can pay their bills and pay their employees. And there's a lot of resources to be able to do that because mm-hmm. if a subcontractor is not paying, you can, you know, do a joint check agreement mm-hmm. and, and so on. The key is communication, though, mm-hmm. and building rapport with the subcontractors. You know, in my team, for example, I, I'm one that I, I love people. I mean, I, we, were, we were talking about this before starting recording. I really love people and I'm able to connect. For some reason, God gave me a, an ability to connect. Cindy, we've talked about what does it take to be successful with the federal government to be successful in, in the procurement side and be successful on the construction side. You know, on, on the surface, there's a lot more mm-hmm. that, that happens, right? What is success for you today, for Cindy today, at this stage in your life? Wow, that's an open-ended question. That's um, good. That's easy, though. What's success look like for me today? I think um, for me, 
it is I have great clients that I work with and like you and the ability to watch them succeed. Uh, I think the with Lunacon, I was really ecstatic when we won the Flamingo job. That was my first big proposal with you guys. And on a personal level is my relationship with my family, my wife, and I've got two longtime friends that I'm going to see next week in Fort Myers. I mean, we've been friends over 40 years. So I, you know, and, and just living life at, at age 60. And you look great. Hey, that's, that's what I tell 60 years old. So Don't say it because you don't look like it. <laughs> well, my mom's 80 and she doesn't look like she's 80. I hear for you what fills your soul is contribution. And you do this by helping smaller companies grow and be successful so that they don't have to depend on large companies. You didn't say that, but I know that. That's true. You know, I think, you know, with me being a veteran woman own company. I think paying it forward with my knowledge and, you know, I, I there's a lot of companies out there that, that can't afford to hire resources right up front. So what I do is I work with them on tier pricing and, you know, I mean, we do a start, you know, at a, at a low dollar amount and as they continue to grow and be successful, then my rate goes up. So I, I, I think it's working and paying it forward and in, in, in helping others. I mean, that was, you know, growing up, that was one of the biggest things that that was instilled in, into all of us, you know, by our parents is, you know, helping others and, you know, taking care of others around us. And, and we did that, you know, either by shoveling sidewalks or, or cutting, you know, the elderly's yards around us. I mean that that was one thing that my that my parents really pushed for us to do. And that's beautiful, you know, and, and I know that uh, you leave you leave that truth. I am um, I can give testimony of that. You leave it and you you are your word. So I we are very grateful to you and I know there's many other companies that can say the same thing. So you are doing living your truth. Cindy, tell me about women in construction or women in the Air Force or women in the military. What's your take on that topic? Well, I mean, things have changed since when I first went in in 1980, 40 years ago. You know, back then, women were in the traditional roles, admin, you know, accounting, payroll. It, it wasn't until later in my career that you started seeing women go into combat roles. Um, and, and I think, too, in the, in the construction industry, you know, you can see that now. You know, 40 years ago, there weren't a lot of women that were in the construction industry, both from a management side or even a trade side. And now, you know, there's a number of firms that I know, including Lunacon, that are women-owned and very successful. It has a large degree of professional women working with them, both from an engineering, estimating standpoint, you know. So I, I think they're, I think it's grown, but I think there's a lot more work that can be done. Like what? I think in, in regards to, I always say that not everybody is set up for to get a four-year college degree, but there's a lot of trades out there that women would be good at. Like what? I Electrician. A really good friend of mine is an awesome electrician. She has been for 35 years. A friend of mine was, she's in her 70s now, but in 
Toledo, and she was the first skilled mason, and she also appeared on What's My Line. Wow. So, you know, to be, able to, to, to be able to do that, you know, 40, 50 years ago, and then to look now, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of ability for both young girls to look at and even, you know, older women that are, are looking to make a career change, you know? How do we do that? How do we attract them? Because I, I don't know if many people understand the industry there's a perception, I believe, a little bit different than what it really is. How do we attract more people? Like I, th This is one of the things that I I believe that could be a solution or a, a or could help with a shortage of labor that we have in this industry, mm -hmm. shortage of resources, not only in the, in the field, but also in the, in the management area. Mm -hmm. How do we attract more women into this industry? I wish I knew the answer. I, 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 I don't. I, I just think it's... Being a mentor, you know, maybe looking at with the, the local universities that have construction management programs, work with them to see if you can get more female interns or even on the, the business side of it, not necessarily in the construction management field, but on the accounting side or the business side the leadership side. There's there's yes. always a lot of women coming out of the military that have been in leadership positions. Yeah, that's that's a good source. We need to talk about. Hire veterans. We need to talk about. You need to guide me into that. Mm -hmm. Because we're very interested. We have a foundation, uh, the Lunacon Foundation, that the purpose is exactly that. And so make it easy. Have that training. Make that process easy for, for people to start making a living fast. Mm -hmm. And so I, I need you, your, your guidance in that. In Absolutely. That. Help them transition, you know, out of the military into the civilian sector. And, you know, the, the one thing about, you know, hiring a vet, 99.9% of the time, they are very structured and disciplined. Yeah. Yes. You Can you help us in that? Can the Lunacon Foundation recruit you as a... As part of the board? Absolutely. I'd be more than happy to help yeah. you with that. Yvette, I'm going to talk to Yvette. She's going to make it happen. Okay. <laughs> so I have one last question for you, and it's also open-ended. And this is not the last time we're going to meet. Oh, I'm sure it's not. But tell me, the topic of diversity and inclusion, it's out there, right? Many people have their own idea of what diversity means. Some people talk about diversity and they forget the inclusion part. Because we want to be diverse in what's apparent to us or convenient to us, maybe. Mm -hmm. But we forget to include. And to me, you know, we're all part, we're all one. That's my philosophy, the way I, I want to live my life. We are all one. All, and nobody is to be excluded. Connection is actually the most important thing, for even for us to succeed as leaders. You can't influence anyone that you can connect with. And if I have only people that look like me, my my company is limited. My company is not going to be extremely innovative, right? So what's your perception on diversity? What's your take? Wow, that is an open-ended question. I mean, for me, diversity, a lot of times, you know, people get hung up on person's color of skin or, you know, their sexual orientation, and they don't look at what talent they have 
or the abilities that they have or what they can bring to the company. How are they going to fit in as an asset? And, you know, I mean, just watching the news anymore, it's, it, it's, it's ludicrous. But I think with what you're doing is you're looking for the talent. Who's going to help me take Unicon to the next step and give everybody the opportunity to show that they can be part of the team, regardless of what their background is, what their ethnicity is, their age. Yeah, I, the age thing just, that thrills me. But, you know, there's a lot of very experienced people out there that are 50 and above that you can tap into. And there's a lot of people that are very experienced that they exclude or criticize Absolutely. the younger generation. Yes. You know, they, they, it's instead of saying, you know, being curious, right? And tap into what resources do you have that I don't have mm -hmm. and leverage and how, what can I learn from you? I mean, really, it, it blows my mind. Hey, I'm going through training with the two girls from marketing with Stellar on, on how to do InDesign. You know, I mean, it's it, it's mind-boggling the ability that they have, but they're taking the time to show me on how to be able to do that. So, which is only going to help, you know, me with client proposals, you know, to give them a better product. And it speaks about your ability to be flexible, mm -hmm. but it also speaks about your desire to help. You're not the type because there, you are a rare find, and that is a compliment. There is people that in this industry, because I believe it's one of the issues we have, that they have a lot of experience, but they don't want to share. No. And so they protect them, their area, their job security, I guess. Even if they are no, they're, they're retiring and disappearing from this world because we're not going to live forever. They rather do that. And this industry has to recreate the same over and over again. And that's exactly what happens with the government. If you notice now, the government, especially in the contracting, they are losing a lot of those contracting officers that have been contracting officers for 20 plus years. So all of that experience is walking out the door. And now it's it's we're working with a, a lot younger group of contracting officers that, you know, I mean, the flexibility may not be there. They may be just black and white or they too flexible. So it, it depends on the agency. But I think... I think for the most part, you know, looking at ways to further grow the company, I don't think anybody needs to be excluded, you know. I mean, we've all seen it on TV to where, you know, there's people working to their 80s and 90s at McDonald's and, you know, and, and they're some of the happiest people around. I think everybody has something to offer. And, and you know what, Cindy, in this world that we live, that sometimes we value success based on the bottom line. When you have people that walk into your area, to your job or to your, to your house, to your company, and they're 80 years old, yet they radiate this love and this energy. It's that alone. We don't value that, but it's empowering. Because mm -hmm. when you have the contrary, it just blocks you from, from moving forward. So as leaders, if we can see that, if we can find the value in all of us, right, and restrain ourselves from judgment, we can be powerful as individuals, powerful as companies, powerful as a community, and 
power, a powerful company, a powerful world. So we, we're going to keep talking about diversity and inclusion, send this message out. And I really, 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 really appreciate you being here. <laughs> Well, I'm glad I came. Thank you so much. Oh, appreciate you having me. Thank you for your service. Oh, thank you. Uh, I know there's not only in the private sector, but in the military. Uh, we are very honored to be a little contributor to the Air Force and, and the Department of Defense and other agencies which we have worked for. Because we're not out there in the battlefield, but the little contribution we have to the freedom this country gives and all the opportunities this country has for the people that want to take advantage of that, it's it's fulfilling for us. I appreciate that. Thank you for what you do. Thank you. This country produces an outstanding woman. Oh, I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Thriving in Construction, the podcast with Patricia Bonilla. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. If you have any suggestions or any related topics you would like us to tackle in our future episodes, feel free to reach Patricia by sending her a message through the website anchor.fm slash thriving in construction or find her on LinkedIn. Thanks again and we'll see you next week here in Thriving in Construction the podcast.